0: Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm Danny Parisi. I'm senior fashion reporter at Glossy, and I'm here with Glossy's other fashion reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. Zofia, how are you?
1: Yeah, very good, thank you. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Um, I am going to be off next week, so Zofia and Joe will be taking over. But um, So I'm looking forward to my vacation. But I'm very excited that you're here, especially because we're going to talk a little metaverse stuff today. Um, and that's something I, you and I both have an interest in. So looking forward to that. But we've got a couple other stories we're going to talk about first. So I think the one of the biggest news stories of the week was Farfetch and Neiman Marcus having their big partnership. Um, we'll talk about that first. We'll talk a little bit about Shein becoming a $100 billion company and the, the rumors of You know, raising a billion dollars in fundraising and all that stuff about Xi'an. And then we'll talk a little bit about Gucci and Valentino, both appointing new executives to head their business in China and the importance of the Chinese market. And then we'll finish up talking about metaverse stuff and gaming, um, which is a topic I'm very interested in and very interested in hearing your thoughts, Sophia. But let's start with Farfetch. So obviously, you know, Farfetch, gigantic luxury e-commerce player. Um, They're a marketplace as opposed to a kind of like more traditional retailer, the way like Net-A-Porter is. Um, So they don't necessarily buy the inventory. But the big news this week was that they have this big partnership with Demon Marcus, All of Bergdorf Bergdorf Goodman, which is owned by Neiman Marcus, all of their um, online business is moving over to Farfetch. A bunch of Neiman Marcus stuff will sell on Farfetch. Um, Farfetch is putting like $200 million into Neiman Marcus. It's it's a big deal for for both companies, I think. A lot of the reporting around it that I've seen has been about sort of the consolidation of luxury, uh, which we've seen with brands getting bought up by big conglomerates. But increasingly, the e-commerce space is kind of Consolidating as well. Everyone's either selling on Farfetch or they're selling through Net-a-Porter, stuff like that. So, Sophia, what, what were your thoughts on on this move? I, I can give you my opinion, but I want to hear yours first.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, I think that you know, in in recent like months, I think or, you know, in the past couple of years, it's kind of shown that China's growth in terms of spending has slowed down, um, and America being such a big target. For, you know, consumer spend has never really decreased, but it's something that, you know, has to be weighed against the fact that at the moment, especially in China, there's more additional lockdowns. So it might not be seen as as an attractive um, consumer market or perhaps one which is not quite as reliable. Um, The US, you know, is quite isolated in some ways from what is happening in Europe and Asia. Um, And while it does have its own problems, so things like inflation um, it does seem to be something that, you know, poses a more attractive option at the moment. More stores are opening up um, in the U.S. in newer kind of towns, areas which are kind of exciting. Um, and also, you know, sales like carrying reported very strong sales um, for Balenciaga and McQueen. So I can see why, you know, Neiman Marcus and Farfetch would be a kind of obvious proposition to kind of bring that luxury kind of interest to American shores.
0: Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And like, you've seen it with like, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe Vestiaire Collective um, acquired Tradesy and Vestier is based in Paris and Tradesy is an American company. So there's there a lot of interest in like European luxury, I think in um, strengthening the business in North America. They've always had like strong business in North America, but I think you're right there. We, meaning Americans are very insulated from a lot of like the stuff happening in Europe and Asia. We like don't do lockdowns the same <laughs> as most other places for for good or bad um but it's just true um and the other thing is um you know so looking at this move from the farfetch perspective like farfetch has like two billion dollars in revenue i think each year um as of last year so they've got a ton of money and they like when you've got two billion dollars you're like looking for things to spend it on um so i think for them it it's like uh a boon to their kind of like white label experience to kind of just like work with like some of the bigger American luxury department stores. In some ways I almost see it as like a maybe not a direct challenge to, but but definitely like in the same vein as Alibaba or T Mall's like luxury pavilion, how having these kind of like discrete setups on the site for luxury brands or luxury retailers so like have their own little space, but within the larger like Tmall Tmall platform. And Farfetch, I think, is probably like the closest example to that, not based in China. You know, like to your point, that that's like kind of a, a similar thing to like the Luxury Pavilion, but you know, focused on the rest of the world. So um, that that was something that stood out to me. And then on like the Neiman Marcus side, like Neiman Marcus has been talking a lot about wanting to you know, strengthen their online business and how they were going to put like $600 million into like their technology and stuff. And then it it's kind of funny to me because it's sort of like, well, we could do it or, we, you know what, honestly, let's just let Farfetch handle it. And that's like what Farfetch wants. You know, they want to be like the person that you just hand off your online stuff to them and like let them handle it.
1: Yeah, essentially. I mean, they're like the service people. Uh, and, you know, with Neiman Mark is kind of including a lot more of that kind of store experience aspect to it. They, you know, they have their kind of connect app. They're talking about, you know, developing that kind of in-store associate relationship with their consumers to make it a little bit more of a kind of personalized luxury thing. I think it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, Farfetch has got such an extensive kind of record of being this kind of white label service for um, big kind of department or multi-store retailers, like Neiman Marcus, I mean, they had, you know, that reported um, partnerships with Netaporte as well last year. Um, And I think that that is something that, you know, could also spur that, depending on, you know, how much of the market they want to be in charge of. But it seems like they, they kind of have a finger in all the pies at the moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, let's move on to Shein. So I think Sophia, we, you and I have talked about Shein before on the podcast, specifically around them. They're like kind of vague or lame attempts at like being sustainable, even though they're like just gigantic, gigantic company. That's like pumping out fast fashion. Um, anyway, the, this week it was reported, um, by Bloomberg that they are, um, Allegedly looking to raise like a billion dollars in fundraising, um, possibly might go public, but possibly might not. Um, it's vague, and and like there have been rumors about this for a while. But the interesting thing to me is just to talk about how Shein, to me, like obviously I've heard of it and I've been aware of it for a little while. But I feel really like they they I feel like they really kind of not came out of nowhere, but sort of like became gigantic of kind of gradually and without a lot of fanfare, you know? Like, I feel like I don't see them except for, like, on TikTok where people do, like, Shein hauls and stuff. And then just, like, kind of without anybody realizing it, they became, like, the biggest or one of the biggest, like, e-commerce, like, platforms in the entire world. So what do you think is, like, behind that kind of, like, like... Subtle but still like very rapid growth for them. Like, is it just that people love fast fashion and it's cheap, or like, I don't know, what do you think?
1: No, I think that you know, you're right, it's something that has definitely kind of escaped attention. I think, in the same way that you'd be looking at you know, larger kind of fast fashion brands like HM, um, Mango, Zara, and like, those are the kind of ones that you see a lot of marketing for because that's essentially your target group. I think with Shein, because of the fact that their target group is usually significantly younger, it might just be something that you haven't seen much because it's just not targeted at you. Um, And I think that that's something that has definitely shown why it's kind of been under the radar, because it's been something that, you know, a lot of kind of teens and people in their like early 20s have been relying on for fast fashion the same way that they used to do with ASOS until, you know, they up their offering and they, u- they upped their prices. But there's also a kind of accessibility aspect. Like, Shein are very popular because they offer an extremely wide range of sizes. And I think that's one of the, like, only good points about it, in a sense. It is something that is very accessible, like, even with, you know, the extremely long shipping costs and things like that. Um, it is just something that, a lot of people just gravitate towards because they can find, you know, up-to-date styles. They don't have to wait around and the selection is enormous and constantly changing. It's something that satisfies the attention of the TikTok market.
0: Yeah, I I think the other thing that's interesting to me is that kind of... I, I I hear a lot from brands and like research people and stuff that oh like Gen Z like loves values and, and you have to like be super ethical and sustainable to like get Gen Z on board and like that might be true to some degree but I feel like Shein is like such a like strong counterpoint to that because it's like incredibly like that it is like the epitome of fast fashion. It's like ultra cheap. It's like not good quality. It's certainly not good for the environment and like all the Gen Z TikTok people love it you know so I feel like it's a little bit of a pin in that bubble of like young people are so ethical and they only want brands that are like super ethical and stuff and again I'm sure there are a lot of people that do and maybe even more than other age groups but it's not like uh, a company like Shein couldn't get successful if there wasn't you know some people who don't care you know
1: yeah, definitely. And honestly, it's it's again, one of those same things. Like a couple of years ago, ASOS would be that kind of per, um, retailer, which would have been at fault, or thought to be at fault because of, you know, consumer choices. And it was exactly the same conversation then. Now it's just the difference that the speed of production is, is so much faster. And obviously, it's hitting a completely different demographic. And it's hitting it extremely effectively, like the the valuation of 100 billion, it shows just how much of a stake it has. And I think specifically also how much of a stake it has in the American market. So we're kind of returning to, to that subject of like Gen Z American consumers and kind of how they are shopping right now, whether it is really with their values or maybe they hold different brands accountable um, to those values, but others not, which does seem a little bit hypocritical. I also just wanted to kind of note the timing of the um Valuation came out at the same time as a number of different sustainability reports, which strikes me as quite ironic. Um, But uh, once again, Shein is going to be targeted. I think in these, there's you know EU EU legislation talking about durability of materials. That you know, if Shein wants to market in the EU, they're going to have to abide by um unless you know that that kind of language is changed later on when the legislation gets passed but i think it's something that might also make you know the american market more attractive for them as well
0: yeah for sure um okay cool let's move on and talk about uh speaking of you know china and stuff um this is kind of like something you've been you've been saying like this the whole episode so far, but uh, this week, Gucci and Valentino, and I just picked these two because there was like, you know, reports about it this week, but I think there's evidence of this um, in previous weeks from other luxury brands too. But this week, Gucci and Valentino both um, appointed new executives to lead their business in China. Um, Gucci, it was uh, Laurent Cathala is the president of Greater China. He's coming from Tiffany. And then Valentino appointed Janice Lam as CEO of China, um, who comes from Prada. And, to me, like the notable thing about this is that, like you you mentioned earlier, like China has some travel restrictions in place now. In general, I think China is does a better job of like putting these restrictions in place in an effort to kind of to try and contain the virus, which like the, U- the U.S. has not done nearly as strongly. And but what that means for the business side is that people stay in China and aren't traveling as much. So the business. I think a lot of Western brands, like non-Chinese brands, have always had this like two-pronged approach of like trying to drum up sales in China and then trying to drive up sales to China from outside of China. So like, you know, people traveling from China to like Paris or New York or whatever, um, or just, you know, delivering to China, which I think is um, less popular than just opening business in China. But anyway, um with those travel restrictions in place and the likelihood that there will be more travel restrictions in the future, I think selling within China is becoming a lot more important than trying to cater to like a Chinese tourist or something on Madison Avenue or something like that. Um so that's my kind of my perspective on on why these moves are happening, you know, they they want to like build up their their infrastructure within China. I know from talking to a lot of brands that it's it's tough to do business in China from outside of China. Um, it, a lot of the big luxury brands have tried to set up offices and teams and and executives and stuff who operate within China just because it's easier and simpler and gets over a lot of logistical stuff. Or the alternative is, like we were saying earlier, work with Tmall Luxury Pavilion and just let them handle it. So, um, But I think Gucci and, and Valentino and these brands kind of um, putting more... Emphasis or investment onto the team on the ground in China, that shows me that there's definitely some concern on on tourism and travel and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the only thing I'd add to that is obviously managing any kind of PR aspects to it outside of China may seem quite difficult. And I think anticipating, you know, those kind of cultural differences uh, and making sure that the team is kind of effectively integrated with, you know, all of the kind of regional differences as well within China, I think would make for a much kind of deeper, a, a deeper kind of injection into that market. I think it makes more of a sense to to make it a little bit more integrated um, and a little bit more personalized, I guess. I think doing it from the outside does give it a little bit of a generalist feel and that hasn't worked out very well in the past.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then one final note on this is uh, this is something Jill and I talked about, but kind of further reinforces the sort of revolving door element of, of all the like big luxury brands that like both of these executives are coming from other luxury brands that are part, either parts of other conglomerates or they're one of the few kind of independent brands on their own. Um, like Gucci is caring, obviously, um, but Valentino, I think, is independent, right? I think Valentino owns itself. Um, so it's just interesting. Anytime there's movement between the brands, I always try to pay attention of who's going where because, like, like we were saying earlier, so much of luxury is consolidating, and all like so many brands get snapped up by big conglomerates, but also like individuals from those brands also get snapped up too. So going from an independent brand to a conglomerate brand like Gucci, um, you know, to me is another sign that that's where that movement is going. Okay, let's talk about our last thing. So on uh, Monday this week, I had a story go live on Glossy that was about the metaverse. And this was something that I had been working on for a while and have been talking with the team. I talked with you, Sophia about it. I've talked with um, Liz Flora um, on the beauty side about metaverse's relationship to video games. And uh, a lot of the the concepts, uh, the, the gist of the article, which I will link in the description of, of the episode, um is that a lot of the concepts of the metaverse are things that have been doable in, and by metaverse, I'm sorry, I'm giving so much, like so many caveats here. By metaverse, I'm talking like the kind of modern like blockchain based metaverse ideas that have become really popular in the last like two years, maybe. But a lot of the ideas behind it are things that have been doable in games for like decades, like I think there's been a lot... A lot of people have noted that something like Decentraland or The Sandbox or even like um, Meta, formerly Facebook, like their Horizon Worlds thing, it's all just like Second Life, which is a video game from like 2002 that was doing all of these things long before the blockchain became part of it. And so the story is sort of like a critical look of like, why is blockchain even necessary for any of these things? I think a lot of the rhetoric is like, this is, you know crypto and web three stuff. is like allowing all these new ideas. But from my reporting, a lot of those ideas are things that were doable beforehand. Um, So anyway, I have more thoughts about it, but I I don't wanna monopolize the conversation. Sophia, what are are your thoughts on that? Like the idea of these concepts being new uh, or groundbreaking versus the idea that it's kind of just a different version of something you've been able to do for a while.
1: No, I I definitely agree with you. I think that it is something that has been around for a really long time. You know, the kind of idea of social gaming has been around since, you know, the first kind of multiplayer online games. Um, And that is something that has just continued to evolve with, you know, different platforms like, um, uh, I don't know, even something like, Club Penguin or Sims, like essentially, these are all platforms which enable that kind of social aspect to, you know, to interaction in the digital sphere, which essentially is the metaverse, like the only difference in the way that it's done now, as you said, is that kind of crypto element. And uh, the thing is that like, even with social gaming, like things like Fortnite now, the the kind of aspect of purchasing power is still included because, you know, you can buy skins, you can buy extension packs, like all of that kind of consumer-related aspects that brands could get involved in is already there. So I guess it makes sense to question why the crypto element is necessary until you kind of look at, you know, kind of social or decentralized finance, which, you know, is another whole kind of um, whole more, other topic, yeah. Yeah, whole other topic, um, but it's essentially what's the difference between Web two, which is what we're in now, and Web three, where you know the the consumer can kind of have a portion of the market through NFTs or purchases. And granted, it doesn't make for a particularly interactive game experience when it's experiences like you know the Sandbox or Decentraland, when you know that fidelity of the the avatars, the world, like, for someone who, you know, likes to kind of game, you probably want a more interactive, kind of interesting, more enriching game experience. And I think that's coming. I definitely don't think it's out yet. But the whole kind of metaverse aspect still is still very kind of much in its early days. And it's not something that in some ways, should be compared to gaming, because it's almost like a different field. Um, In in my experience, anyway, like I can appreciate both. I think there's just that Web3 element is still very much in its early days. Like it's only been around really for like two years, maybe. And for people to actually jump into it, I would say probably just this year. Um, So if you think about it, like it's still going to take years before that will actually be something that people want to, you know, be involved in, um, play in, and kind of spend a little bit more time as well, rather than, you know, one-off events like Metaverse Fashion mm-hmm. Week.
0: Yeah, no, I, and, and you have a good point that they're not really like the same thing and they're not trying to be the same thing necessarily. I, I One of the sources that I talked to for the story was kind of saying that, you know, with the a lot of games that are like games first, there's like a game to play, there's a reason to Log in for that. And then sprinkled on top of that, there is, you know, the option to buy something. There's the option for a brand to get involved. Like, for our purposes at Glossy, like, you know, Louis Vuitton has made stuff for League of Legends. And, uh, like, Prada's done stuff with, like, I think... I forget if it was Roblox or Fortnite. Like so there's like brand opportunities with those like traditional games, but it's like the game first and then the the financial kind of the commerce thing is like stapled to it. And then a lot of the blockchain like metaverse stuff to me seems like the opposite where it's like Decentraland seems like it's meant for buying and selling NFTs, like it's meant for like the crypto stuff first and then like on top of that it's like uh yeah, and you can like walk around and stuff too. Like it feels like kind of secondary to the other, which is fine. Like if that's like what it's for, I think the interest, the interesting thing for me though, is like, if you want to make your metaverse more like game, like to me, like, it seems like you want people who are interested in games to get involved. But I think people who are interested in games, like one, have much better options out there that are like actual games. And also I think gamers in general like which is kind of a nebulous you know group of people but in general i think are not very interested in in nfts there's been a lot of examples in the games world of different game studios or game developers like trying to get into the nft stuff and getting like extreme resistance from the players and then backing out and stuff there actually was just a perfect example of this this week which is ubisoft um, one of the biggest game publishers and developers in the world they a french company um got went really hard into nfts um this year they or at the end of last year and into this year they were like yeah all of our games are going to have nfts this is the future got like immense backlash from a lot of their players and um was reported for internally from a lot of the developers too like didn't really want to get involved with it and then one of their games um i think it's called breakpoint Which had a bunch of nfts and people bought a bunch of nfts they just like shut the game down so now all those nfts are like worthless so i i i'm not saying it's like the concept can't work but i'm like if you want to like target people who are interested in games like it's going to be a hard sell i think just based on the reaction from game companies that have tried it
1: yeah definitely i think that people conflate the fact that the digital experience is split into many different kind of experiences you can experience it through gaming you can experience it through you know metaverse platforms but it's not necessarily the same thing i think everyone automatically thinks you know digital therefore it must be you know interactive worlds and then you know potentially you could include something with gaming but those things are two distinct things it's the same way it works in reality you know you have things like the stock market and then you also have, you know, real time games like basketball, like starting to integrate those even in kind of in reality is difficult enough. Now, imagine doing it in a digital space where, you know, people are convinced about the concept in the first place, like it's going to be a difficult thing to, to kind of integrate. And I think it's it makes perfect sense that, you know, gamers would not be keen right now to to get into it that is it does strike me as funny that an opportunity for them to make money is something they don't want to be involved in
0: yeah, that's that's true and i I do think that like like you said, it's very early and I'm sure that there's like there will be use cases for nfts and and crypto stuff like for fashion brands specifically um that will make more sense and and but I feel like right now a lot of the options that I see like feel so like overhyped and like especially compared to the actual experience so but I mean that's why we're that's why we cover it and and you've written so many great stories about this world yeah I feel like you've got your finger on it so um I'm sure in future episodes we will be talking about this um for a long time to come
1: yeah definitely I'll, I'll be excited to dig into it as it evolves
0: yes So, okay, I think we will end it there, but thank you so much, Sophia. It's always great to have you and uh, you will be leading this discussion next week.
1: Yeah, I'm excited for that and I hope you have a great holiday.
0: Thank you. And for those of you listening, if you have not already um, subscribed to the Glossy Podcast, make sure you do so. Not only will you get these episodes with me and jill or me and sophia um or next week jill and sophia um every friday but also every wednesday jill hosts the glossy interview kind of format where she talks to people in the industry so you'll get two episodes a week um also if you have not please rate and review us on apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use that really does help us a lot all right thank you for listening